지는 놈 뜨기로 하자. 네가 지면은 깡패지 때려치고 내가 지면은 변호사 개업하고 됐냐? 이런데도 다 다니나? 네 자료를 검토했다. 나이트클럽 영업상무, 룸사롱 영업부장. 돌마이들한 100명쯤 되고. 도광판 넘버3도만 아이고 어떤 개새끼 Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Heroic Purgatory, an Asian cinema podcast. I'm John, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Jason. Jason, how are you? I'm okay, John. How are you? I'm good as well. So today, uh, we'll uh, continue our coverage of the 90s with yet another 1997 uh, this time double feature, which is a first for us. And I didn't realize that all the movies that we've covered so far in this season have been from 1997. That was not planned. That was a coincidence. But I suppose it's a happy coincidence. But the double feature that we'll cover today is uh, first Lee Chang Dong's Green Fish and Song Nong Ha's number three, both from the same year. However, before we get to our discussion, uh, let's uh, get to our usual uh, topics of discussion and uh, talk about uh, our media consumption these past two weeks. So what have you been watching, Jason? So um, since we last spoke, I watched uh, Peninsula, which is the sequel to Train to Busan. And it was broadly what I expected, um, uh, a much uh, a zombie movie on a much larger scale. And it has Mad Max action car chases. Um, I felt like uh, the CGI was a bit ropey um the action scenes were good though and um i could forgive a number of uh zombie movie cliches specifically the zombie arena that's set up uh overall i enjoyed it uh other things that i watched uh were uh the anime series on amazon prime after the rain which uh came out alongside um a live action movie it's uh, about a 17-year-old girl who falls in love with a guy in his 40s about halfway through, and um, I'm not sure what to make of it at the moment, other than it's kind of cute, but the subject matter, um, they keep dancing around it. So um, I'm wondering how it's going to end. And I've Is it a one-season anime? Yeah, it's one season, 12 episodes. So um, I think it covers the same ground as the live-action movie. It's based on a manga, uh, which I haven't read, so I'm like going into this totally blind. Uh, yeah, so far it isn't gripping my attention, so um, I'm only halfway through. Uh, I've been rewatching a number of films from the Osaka Asian Film Festival and published a series of reviews on my blog and on the cinema. And since it's the 25th anniversary of the Resident Evil franchise, I've replayed the original Resident Evil 2. And um, I'm about to download the demo for Resident Evil Village, the latest installment. And um, that's about it for my media consumption. All right. That's great. 
Um, uh, as for me, I did mention last time that I'm trying to get to the, you know, slowly but surely I'm making my way through the Oscar movies. I actually did not have that much time this week, so I, I didn't do a whole lot of watching or reading or whatnot. I um, watched Better Days, the Hong Kong film uh, from uh, that is nominated for Best Foreign Oscar, and I'm, I'm surprised that it's a Hong Kong entry because the only thing hong kong about the film is that it's the director is originally from hong kong but the the film is set in china it's in in mandarin it's uh it's by a chinese production company uh, so i'm not i'm not sure why it's qualified as hong kong and it's it's an interesting film uh i think i'm a little surprised that it managed to get past the chinese censor because even though on the surface it's a very it's a very obvious PSA about bullying, and it even ends with you know some title card saying, "Here's what the Chinese government has done to to stop bullying," and it's very triumphant. But there's a few undertones in the film that are somewhat critical of of you know the I guess I guess the the uh, a few things about the Chinese educational system that it, it they're not they're not on the surface, so maybe they don't stand out as much, but they're not exactly hidden. So anyway, it's it's an interesting film. Uh, I recommend uh, checking it out if um, if you have the time. Yeah, um, so the uh, director is Derek Tsang, and he's the son of Eric Tsang, the famous actor who was in Mad World. But um, Derek Tsang's um, di- uh, previous film was Soul Meat. Uh, if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it. It's uh, a great drama. I will, I will. I will. Yeah. I mean, I was, despite, you know, whether or not I do think the film's social commentary is, is very effective. I still think it was a very good, uh, a very well-made film on that, on that level. Uh, so yeah, I will, I'll be sure to check that one out. So the other, I rewatched a couple of films that I had seen in the past just because, uh, yeah, I don't know. I felt like it. I watched, I rewatched, uh, the man who fell to earth, uh, starring David Bowie and directed by Nicholas Rogue. The only other Nicholas Rogue film that I had seen is Walkabout, which I think I have a very high opinion of. I mean, I like it very much. The Man Who Fell to Earth, I did not like it as much the first time I watched it. I rewatched it because, you know, I I thought my opinion of it would change. It's a very interesting film, but I don't know that I like it anymore uh, the second time. Um, uh, there's that. And then I rewatched also the, uh, uh, I think the director's name is Emir Kusturitsa, the, 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 the night of the gypsies. I think the film is called the time of the gypsies, something like that. It's a, uh, it won best directors, best director on the Cannes film festival that day. And it's a very good, uh, Serbian, I think either Serbian, uh, or Croatian. I'm not sure. I think Serbian film from uh, the early nineties, uh, very, very, very good film. Uh, and lastly, I also finally, I mean, this, this week, the, fin- the series finale of, of the uh, Kim's Convenience TV show aired, uh, which did not feel very much like a series finale. I felt like they wrapped up things a little too quickly, uh, and I felt a little bit rushed. And I think that's because um, the creators, there was supposed to be another season, but the creators just decided to end it early for unspecified reasons. So I really hope, I mean, it was, it was okay. It wasn't terrible, but I really hope they come back, at least do a special, uh, and a better, a better suited ending for the series because it's a very good series and it deserves that. Uh, but that's, uh, that's it for my media consumption these past two weeks. Perhaps they'll have a Christmas special. Yeah. I, I like a lot of British TV shows do. That's not a very common thing in North America, but I don't see why they couldn't do it. Mm. 
All right. So unless you have anything else to add, we can proceed into our new segment. Yeah, we can proceed. And uh, I have a very, I have very a few items written down here that happened or that has got to my attention. The first is that the BAFTA Awards were this weekend, at least as of the time we're recording, were about a week ago. That's probably two weeks ago by the time you uh, the episode hits the air. Uh, but the BAFTA Awards and uh, Nomadland as predict predictably won best film, and I also think best director. And uh, Minari, uh, the uh, which is you know the the Korean American film, won best supporting actress for the uh, the only Korean uh, national cast, which I forget I forget the name. I should probably looked up the name of the of the actress. Very, she did a very good job in that film, and I think the award was deserved. Yeah, there's the famous well famous clip circulating on um, Twitter where she describes British people as snobbish. <laughs> Oh really? Yeah, in her acceptance I, speech. I yeah. have to I have to to see that. I have not I did not I mean I, I only read the the winners. I did not watch the awards. Yeah, she well she considered it high praise because um British people have uh you know would high standards. Have high standards, exactly. Yeah. Oh well that I guess that's good. Uh, the second news item that I've written down here is that the San Diego Asian Film Festival Spring Showcase is actually happening i don't think it as of the time we're recording it i don't i don't think it has started yet but it will have started by the time this episode out and i think all at, at least if you're in north america all films will be available online if i'm not mistaken i don't know if you had the chance to look this up jason i've only looked at the lineup of films so i'm not sure um how broadly available this will be it i believe it will be virtual because it lists it lists system requirements here of what kind of operating system and what kind of uh, browser you need to have so yes it's online and, and it's usually it's it's something that we cover regularly at v cinema so it's definitely uh it's it's geared more towards indie films and and first-time directors if i remember correctly so it's unlikely that you'll see any recognizable names but the the entries there are usually very worthwhile so if you have the time and you're willing to spend some money check it out 10-part japanese drama called um the real thing by koji fukada which has had limited um, festival play, but um, I'm a few episodes in and it's very intriguing. So uh, if you have the chance, you know, uh, check it out. That, that's in the festival? Yep, it's in the festival. It's interesting. Usually they don't have, although, I mean, occasionally festivals will show one episode or two of, uh, of TV series, so I suppose it's not unheard of. Yeah, the Venice Film Festival um, showed... Penance by Kyoshi Kurosawa about seven years ago or five years ago. So it's rare, but this is a good chance to see um, high quality Japanese drama. And the last news item, which I actually got from your website, Jason, is a 4K release of uh, Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence by Nagisa Oshima. So would you like to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so uh, this is, uh, there are two films by Nagisa Oshima which are going to be screened in cinemas over the next couple of months. Um, one of them's Empire of the Senses, and the one that's currently on release is Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, and it's a 4K uh, digital restoration. And um, it's going to be a, a limited run, but um, the trailer looks fantastic. It, I mean, I, I know this is, at least from what I remember reading on your on your article, this was not declared, but it would be baffling to me if they didn't follow that with a home video release of like either a blu-ray or something something along those lines i haven't looked too deeply into that they, there's been a number of um 4k re-releases of films throughout the year uh 
kind of throughout last year. So this is a, a quite a common trend in Japan. Yeah, so I would be. I think I think that's. I think for a film like this, it it makes sense that they would do a a limited theatrical re-release uh, for you know those the cinephiles, so to speak, and then followed followed by a a more broader uh, home video release. So I think that that's a reasonable expectation to have. Yeah, th- this is the sort of thing that would get played in mini theaters, um, community cinemas, where you can get smaller films, independents, and classics screened. So if you're in Japan, you have a chance to see, uh, well, a classic film. All right. So now we can move on to our uh, main topic of today's episode, and that is a double feature, like I mentioned in the introduction, a first for our podcast. And we're covering two films that have a lot in common. You know, they were both released in 1997. They were both directorial debuts from their uh, respective directors. Uh, They're both uh, within the gangster genre. They both star the same uh, person. And they also share some other cast, like Song Kang-ho is a supporting character in both of those uh, films. Uh, He has a more minor role in one of them and a slightly more bigger role in the other. Uh, Like I said, they're both gangster films, but they both use the gangster genres for, for social criticism. They were both... Uh, films that were highly popular at the time that they released, although over the years, one of them has kind of um, remained more popular than the other, and we're going to talk about that later. But also at the same time, despite those similarities, in certain aspects, these two films could not be more different, at least in in my opinion, in the viewing experience. But before going into all that, uh, um, it's going to be a little harder than usual task for you, Jason, because you have to summarize two films instead instead of one, but I'm sure you're up to the task. So would you like to do that for us now? One of the films we're going to talk about is Green Fish, directed by Lee Chang-dong and released in February of 1997. It's a story of change and one man's inability to keep up with it. It was Lee Chang-dong's directorial feature, uh, debut feature, and it stars Han Suk-kyu, as a young man named Mac Dong. Mac Dong, when we first meet him, has completed his mandatory military service and has been discharged from the army. On his way to his family home in Ilsan, just outside Seoul, by train, uh, he enjoys his newfound freedom and sticks his head out between the carriages to feel the wind caress his face. This is when he spies another passenger, an attractive woman, doing the same thing. Her name is Mi Ai. She is a nightclub singer, and she is the lover of Bai Taigon, a gangster. She is the femme fatale who will lead Mac Dong down a dangerous path. Finding that life at home has changed beyond his recognition and his family has broken apart, Mac Dong chases after Mi and becomes a small-time gangster in the employ of Bai Taigon. The second film we're going to talk about is number three. And um, this was released in August of 1997. Uh, number three also stars Han Sakyu. Um, number three is director Jung Han Song's debut film. It's a satire of hard-boiled gangster films and an ensemble piece, and it tells the story of third-class thugs, a third-class prosecutor, and a third-class poet, all of whom dream of a first-class life. Uh, our main protagonist, uh, played by Han Sakyu, is Taiju, a middle-ranking gangster in the Dogang crime family. After he inadvertently saves his boss's life during an assassination attempt, he rockets up the hierarchy and becomes the family's number three man. 
However, third place is not enough for him. In his way is the man at number two, a psychopathic colleague named Ashtray, due to the weapon he uses to kill off threats. Then there are various other rival gangsters for Taiju to contend with. His wife wants to be a published poet, and an economy in free fall as Taiju tries to make money off of hotels and clubs during tough economic times. Meanwhile, an exceedingly righteous and tough prosecutor named Dong Pao wants to bring everyone to book and is constantly on Taiju's case. All right, thank you for those two concise summaries, uh, Jason. So, as I understand it, this was a first time watch for you, right? For both films. Yeah, so I was vaguely aware of both films because they were put out by Third Windows Films. Uh, they were um, sort of a raft of Korean gangster films that this British um, DVD label or film distribution label put out in the early 2000s. And Number 3 and Greenfish, uh, Kick the Moon, um, No Blood, No Tears, Guns and Talks. I think those were like the opening salvo of like Korean new wave films that they released. Um, I ended up picking up No Blood, No Tears and... Um, I, I saw it on TV and I wanted to get my hands on it because it was such an exciting watch at the time, but I haven't watched the DVD in subsequent years that I followed. Um, and, uh, oh, what was the other one? Kick the Moon, which I did review on my blog. Um, so number three and Greenfish, I kind of forgot about over the years. So I was, um, quite intrigued when, um, we, uh, discussed, um, putting together this list of films from the 90s and these two came up. I think these are two of the earliest Korean films I've ever watched, actually. I have two questions for you. Um, what, you know, our usual is, what did you think of them? And the second question is, I, it was me, I think, that uh, to take full responsibility for it, that I suggested that we do a double feature of this film. So what did you think of the films? And do you agree with my assessment that these make a good double feature together? I think they're brilliant. <laughs> I wish I'd watched them sooner. Um, when I watched Green Fish, I... Um, because I'd watched As Tears Go By by Wong Kar Wai, I definitely got the sense that this was like um, a debut film by someone, uh, like a really talented filmmaker who's using the conventions to tell a story that he's interested in, instead of just telling a simple uh, gangster genre story. And um, although the story's remarkably simple, it has deep meaning in terms of uh, some of the... Um, context around what's happening with the main character number three was possibly my yeah it's definitely my favorite i'd say um because it's got varying tones like action and comedy it's not just uh, a tragedy that greenfish is and the director i think he's only done two works but he uses so many tricks throughout the film it's constantly engaging yeah, uh, I was. I, I mean, that's another. I forgot to mention this when I first when I was doing the introduction. But yeah, that's another thing. You know, that's one of the things that uh, among the many things that this film having common. One thing that they differ is that while they were both very popular, and I, I tried to find box office numbers, but I don't even know if they've ever been tabulated from nineteen ninety seven, and I couldn't find exact one. But from you know cursory readings and and. Uh, uh, things that I've I've kind of gathered from that time. Both films were very popular and both performed relatively well in the box office. Despite that, one one of the director, the director of number three, just did one more film and hasn't done anything since. And I think he did a film the year after or two years after that, either in 98 or 99, and is just kind of, I, I guess, retired from filmmaking. I have not been able to find any information about 
what his career has been like after that. Uh, whereas, you know, Lee Chang Dong's is just, you know, one of the most, and certainly one of my favorite Kore- uh, Korean uh, directors, but he is, you know, one of the most respected directors uh, in South Korea and internationally working today. In fact, I'm on record saying, I don't know if it was this podcast or somewhere else, that of the two Korean films that kind of gained popularity the last few years, one of them was Parasite in 2019, and one of them is Burning, which came out the year before. I don't know if you saw that film in 2018. I haven't seen it yet, no. Yeah, that was that gained a lot of attention, but I think it was slightly obscured by um what was the Japanese film that also came out that year? I would say uh Koreator film Shoplifters. Yeah, Shoplifters. I think because they were both, you know, kind of thinly veiled criticism of capitalism, I think Burning was kind of obscured by Shoplifters. But I would have said out of even though I love Parasite and it's a great film, if I had to pick one Korean film to win so many Oscars, I would have rather picked Lee Chang Dong's Burning. Uh, than Parasite, because I think Parasite is more conventionally appealing, whereas Burning, I feel it does, it, it's more poignant in its criticism, and it's, I think, a more interesting story in general. It's a little bit more slower, and I think if you, if you, it's kind of, kind of like Green Fish in a sense. Um, but that said, I, and I, I also like Green Fish, like you, I think it's an excellent, uh, it's an excellent gangster drama, it's an excellent, you know, deviation from sort of a lot of gangster dramas, including one that we've talked about in this uh, podcast, which was A Bittersweet Life, which is a more romantic representation of gangsters, even though the the gangster in um, in the main character is finally betrayed, uh, he's still, the, the overall picture is that of romanticism, whereas there's, there's none of that in neither Green Fish nor Number Three. So they both follow that sort of trend that was popular at the time in the in the mid to late 90s in South Korean cinema where they would make this gritty uh, uh realistic gangsters kind of like what Japanese cinema went through in the 70s if we w- would like to draw that parallel but like you number 3 is by far my favorite of the two and I I don't dislike Greenfish uh I like it a lot more I like it a lot but I also I find it relatively too conventional Especially since Lee Chang Don has done better films that deal with with the same sort of subject matter, with the same social criticism later on. Especially his next film, Peppermint Candy, which he did in '99. I think he tackles some of the same thing, tackles some of the same uh, criticism for Korean society of the time. Uh, but I think it does it in a much much better way than Green Fish. Although Green Fish is a, still, I don't want to, I don't want to be misunderstood about this. Is still a great, you know, first film of his. Yeah, in terms of like um, dying in um, ignominious or <laughs> inglorious ways, um, the end, um, one of the gangsters gets uh, killed in a bathroom store, a toilet store, and that reminded me of Pigs and Battleships, which I watched uh, a couple of weeks a uh, couple weeks earlier. It's been forever since I've seen that. Uh, that's um, another Shohei Mamura film, right? Yeah, yeah, which we talked about. Okay, so. I, I would neither of us are experts, but I've uh, in in sort of Korean gangster uh, cinema. But I think we've seen a few. How do you see both of these films kind of within that genre? Within as a, uh, I don't. I would. I think. I think you would agree with me that they're not quite typical gangster films. Even though I mentioned that there was that trend in the '90s where they were, you know, deviating more towards um, a realistic instead of romantic or 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 honorable gangsters i still these two things these two films kind of stand out as being a little more a little more different and a take take that genre in a, in a few more interesting directions i think number three is probably the most um 
far out in terms of the two films in the way that it satirizes the gangster genre at every turn. Um, whether it's by undercutting the sort of cool of the gangsters. Um, yeah, and and um, and I think that's kind of how I uh, how I've seen these two films uh, when I suggested them as a uh, as a double feature. Is Greenfish? I always watch like to watch Greenfish first because it's it's even though it does still use the gangster genre as a as a as a vehicle for social criticism. It's still a con- I think a more conventional drama tragedy, and then watching number three right after that, it just completely subverts, uh, subverts, subverts all the conventions that Greenfish and other gangster films like it just use, and and I, I just that's why I love number number three. It just it's so it's it's such a skillful film, but I don't think there's any point in its in its runtime when it takes itself seriously whereas greenfish is it does take itself too seriously i mean it's a it has reasons to because it's a very capable film but it it is it is very uh um ignominious is that the word that would be appropriate for this context i suppose inglorious uh, ingl- yeah um whereas number 3 is just you know it 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 tries to make fun of its characters and the world that they inhabit at pretty much every turn even the opening title cards there's that slot machine that just rolls and rolls a few times and then it 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 rolls to the title of the film and it rolls at number 2 and then just like kind of like glitches a little bit then goes to number 3 so i think that just kind of foreshadows that this is not going to be a film that takes itself too seriously and of course then then we get a, a this metafictional almost like like a play like like the film is aware of its sort of fictional nature we get this introduction of the cast of characters where you have the freeze frames, them doing something silly like looking in the mirror, fixing one hair, and I think the boss is reading a a, a novel that like makes him cry, and then you ha- we you see Ashtray and the, his wife and all that. Yeah, it sets up all of these characters and it gives them enough space to develop their idiosyncrasies, and then for the final section, puts them all together again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so we have these uh, different, you know. Almost there's almost a picaresque quality to it. So we have these, uh, um, like different things that almost happen independently of each other. Like we have the the his wife uh, that is taking poetry lessons, and then we have the wife of the gangster who is of the boss who is cheating on him, and then we have the Taiju who is trying to climb the the ladder of the of his organization. Uh, and they, you know, they intersect a couple of times, but mostly they're disparate stories that it just all comes together in that third se- segment, which is entitled Chaos. Yeah. Chaos. Chaos. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Like one of the best endings to a film around. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I, and um, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. Um, whereas Greenfish is just laser focused on one guy, an outsider, who's trying to make his way in a rapidly changing career. Um, and that's sort of like Li Changdong's, the focus of his metier. A lot of his stories focus on outsiders and it's much more poignant and, um, sympathetic. Whereas number three is very cynical. Yeah, absolutely. And can, let me, let me just, before I, 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 I go into comparing these two more, um, I, I think it's uh very, it should be mentioned how funny it, number three is. 
and it's funny in ways that it doesn't is not tr- except there are a few cases where it's definitely trying to be funny and there are a few cases that seem so understated like uh, for example everything that Song Kang Ho does in that film who uh, was received a lot of praise for his performance in in number 3 it's his role in the gangster world is never clarified but i think we can kind of surmise that he's a hired assassin or something like that i don't know if you got that from the film that's what i got and he's training these three guys yeah, to be kind of like his assistant, but he's such an incompetent assassin. No job that he ever takes. He, he's hired to kill the boss three times, and three times he fails. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's so funny. And then, you know, in the end, when um, uh, Choi Min Six character, the, the prosecutor, is like interviewing the, the boss, and then he just smashes the phone because he's angry, and then we just <laughs> cut to a, a secretary opening a, a cabinet with another phone in. Yeah. Are there. There's a scene where the poet is with Taiju's girlfriend, and um, he tries to walk off in a dramatic fashion and jump across some stones in a river, and he just slips off a stone, and yeah. he has to try and shake himself off and uh, just walk away. He's, he doesn't look back. He's not <laughs> yeah. looking back in that scene. Yeah, so it's, or you know, just a little bit later, when they're on that swan boat, like it's supposed to be romantic, I don't know if you noticed, she's the only one who's doing the pedaling. He's yeah. kind of like lost... He's lost in thought. Oh, he's um, lost in lust. <laughs> they both fall into That's such yeah. a, a wonderful scene. They just fall into the water. The camera's swirling around in the water with them. It like with typical gangster movie, it would just be relentlessly grim. There are flights of fancy in number three, which makes it so much fun to watch. Yeah. Uh so so let's let's go back to uh sort of uh, you know the the what you mentioned about Grinfish. Or, or uh, I'm not sure if we mentioned it yet or not, but he's, you know, the whole, in both, uh, in especially in Greenfish, but also in number three, economic incentive is at the heart of the main character's motivation, right? So they both kind of, in Greenfish at least, so let's, st- let's stick with that. He is returning, the, he, this is a very cliche type of setup, right? He's returning from a faraway place, which in this case is the army service, which I don't know how long it's in Korea. I thought it was only one year. But maybe it's longer, the mandatory military service. It, it feels like it's a long time because when he returns home, it's like everything has changed. He doesn't recognize exactly. it. Exactly. So, so I think maybe that's a little bit unrealistic because, you know, you get to have leaves and whatnot, but it's, it's fine. You know, it doesn't matter. You can, it's, you're easily able to suspend your disbelief for that one. And he's, you know, everything. And this is also the time, I think, when both these films were being made. And certainly when they were released, if I'm not, if my history is not wrong, this was at the height of the Asian financial crisis, right? Yeah, this was when the, like, the IMF had to step in and there was massive liberalization of the economy and Korea had to open up to outside companies. Um, the one plunged in value. Exactly. And it's also a time where I don't think it's, uh, I'm, again, my uh, our listeners should forgive us because neither of us are expert in, uh, in South Korean history, but it's also both these films portray this and other films from this time do the same thing, uh, uh, 90s films, but they both films portray this sort of plunge into capitalism. And I don't think Korea was not ever capitalist, but I think the dictatorship, the military dictatorship certainly was not very as, as open to the free market that was truly free and completely free of government interference, so to speak. And they both have this sort of under, both films have this underlying economic motivation. Like I was trying to say in Greenfish, the main character, 
um, is, you know, he just, he needs a job and he's, you know, everybody's telling him, you got to get a job. It's not as easy as it used to be. They keep, they keep telling him or something along those lines. And in, in number three, which I think it's, it's even more clever in my opinion, he's trying to, you know, he's, he does this in the entire film. He does two honorable acts. The first one is he saves the boss in the beginning. And the second one, he actually sides with the prosecutor and that may be considered dishonorable depending on whose perspective you, uh, you are. Uh, but, uh, and he's rewarded for both of those, but for most of the film, he's doing pretty typical gangster shit, gangster stuff. (laughs) Yeah. And, um, and there's one point where he's desperately trying to be number two and he thinks he has it. And he's trying to explain to his girlfriend. I'm not sure if he was his wife at that point, uh, what number two is, and she doesn't understand. And he said, it's like I was promoted in a corporation. As soon as he dons that suit, it turns into a sort of workplace comedy where he's like middle management and he's sparring exactly. with other people. He's just being chauffeured here, there and everywhere to different business meetings. And he's complaining about having to work 12 hour days. And um, he's got this internationalist mindset. He's complaining in his sleep. He complains about uh, his subordinates not learning foreign languages and um, this like constant well, he complains talk of, openly. Yeah. He it, complains openly about it and he brags about it to his boss. He has this uh, air of self-satisfaction when his boss says, everybody should be like uh, Taiju here, you know. And then they have another that section with internet. Neither of them knows what internet, but his boss uh, is pretending like he is on top of things. Yeah. The and mafia like, recruits in- people through the internet. Yeah. And then like he can't remember the name and then Taiju says it's internet. And then the other guy, Ashtray, thinks it's Interpol. <laughs> so yeah, it's, it's very funny. But whereas I think Greenfish, like I said, it, it, it takes a more serious approach. And I like how you compared uh, the character Maie or something. Oh, Mi, the... Mi, I think. Forget my pronunciation. To a femme fatale. She definitely feels like a femme fatale. She's even a nightclub singer. Um, her boss, like her lover, mistreats her and like um, pimps her out. Uh, she acts wild. Um, I assumed at one point she might be hooked on drugs because she's spaced out at times. Yeah, I, I think you can interpret that as alcohol, but you're absolutely right. Yeah, she's definitely... Uh, I even got the impression that she might have been a... Because it says at some point they have they have this throw line where he's speaking with another former boss or another collaborator, the main boss of that club, where it says uh, something like, I'm no longer in the prostitution game or something like that. So it's even possible that she used to be a prostitute and uh, the boss uh, kind of took her as his personal concubine and she had to, that was sort of her way out of, of uh, the uh, prostitution. Mm. And he was probably her manager also or something like that. But I, there was a lot of, a lot of uh, like, you know, from the late 90s up to the middle 2000s, a lot of then uh, there's been a lot of written about this, a lot of academic writing about how sort of uh, the resurgence of of gangster films in Korea took a neo noir uh, direction. Uh, and I think this film, I think if you called it a neo noir, you wouldn't be. I think that would be a very valid classification because it even has that jazz music for a lot of it that was uh, very typical. That is, you know, it wasn't actually not that present in noir as it's been in neo noir films, but it has that. Blade Runnery kind of vibe, uh, or you know, Blue Velvet kind of vibe that is kind of prevalent through through Green Fish. Yeah, the, the lighting as well makes one think of new noirs. Exactly, and you know, in a lot of noirs, the motivation are also economic. You know, uh, like um, I'm thinking of Double Indemnity, for example, where the whole point is trying to scam the insurance, hmm. uh, even though it's not 
you know, the, obviously it's South Korea, so everything has to be a little bit more melodramatic than their inspirations. But, you know, it's not about, it's, you know, noirs typically do not involve poor people who are trying to make a living, involve rich people who want to get richer. But, you know, other than that, I do think this kind of very aptly fits that convention. Yeah, like the whole world that um, MacDong inhabits is corrupt, like officials are corrupt, which we see when police take bribes from his older brother. Um, city officials and prosecutors uh, working with gangsters so this definitely has like noir vibes and at the center of this is a very naive and uh it's almost innocent macdong and i think it plays on han suk-kyu's sort of babyish you know, bit of baby face looks like he's really got this really beautiful smile and he just seems so innocent and naive and it's heartrending seeing him get sucked into um, this world of gangsters because he has this simple dream of opening a family restaurant. And when he gets back home, his family's just dispersed. And he doesn't know what to do. Yeah. And there's that scene, which I was going to ask you, what do you make of it when he is finally, you know, having, you know, he's kind of close to his dream in that they're all having presumably their first dinner together, that picnic. Mm. And it just erupts into a fight. So that, I think that that's maybe, you know, Li Chengdong saying that the traditional family structure as we know it is over. I don't think I don't think Greenfish is that is, is very subtle in that respect. I think that's that's but I, I was going to ask, what do you make of that scene and him? You know, it ends that scene ends with him going to his car and he looks like he's going to leave. But all he does is just does circles around the family. Yeah, it seems like all the different family members have been um, corrupted in some way by society. So it's like you've got the younger sister who's who works in a bar as like a hostess, perhaps. You've got the older brother who's a, a detective, but he's constantly drunk. And it seems like in the process of modernization, the family split apart. They've become atomized. They can no longer rely on each other. And like he's just frustrated at the end. And it seems like the gangsters offer a much simpler dream or ideal family that he could, uh, that MacDong can go towards. And, and that's why he takes that, uh, that step at the end, I think, because it's, you know, his, his, his come to the realization that his family cannot be, his actual family cannot be what it was, but the gangsters, the gangster organization can be his family, but he's, you know, obviously proven wrong so many times because and he i don't think he sees it because he doesn't want to see it he wants to believe in this ideal thing because that's his boss also is kind of uh kind of guilty for leading him on whereas his boss is just a as capitalist as all of them or as as profit motivated as as all of them because he's the one that kills him in the end because he just did something that doesn't uh, that doesn't suit his interest but we see that even before that for example song got caught song Kang Ko's character is just kind of betrays betrays their the the organization uh, at the close to the end of the film and the other gangster simply because there was a moment of weakness on behalf of their boss. Yeah, um, by the the gangster in charge of MacDong's gang. Um, he like you can imagine MacDong's incredibly vulnerable at this time of leaving the army. He has no direction in life. Uh, Trying to find work is hard, and Bai steps in as an older brother, takes MacDong under his wing, and you can just, like, MacDong assumes the role of the younger brother and just follows like a puppy um, Bai's orders. And um, through his naivety, um, or like you said, perhaps he just doesn't want to see it because he, like, wants a, a simple solution to life. 
um, by betrays him in the end. Yeah. What do do you think uh, at the end? We it um, we don't know how many time has passed between his death, Mac Dong's death, and the time where you know coincidentally the boss and his wife presumably uh, are in um, in that restaurant. She's pregnant. Do you think the the film gives us any hint that the kid might be Mac Dong's, or is that just is it just me speculating? I think it would be poetic in some ways, but I. I didn't get that sense. I felt like Bai Taigon had managed to elevate himself, perhaps in the crime world, now that he has no rivals. He's a little more secure, and he's able to enjoy something closer to a normal life, and he's taking his um, Ai out, and that's his child. And it's like, ironically, they end up in MacDong's family. Uh, well, should, uh, should I spoil this? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Spoilers, like the we've always not been shy of spoilers in this podcast. Yeah, they, they, you know, ironically, they end up in MacDong's family's home. Like he's like MacDong's dream has come true, but at like with his sacrifice, and it's a bitter, it's like, it's a bit bittersweet ending. At the same time, what did his? I mean, how like how do you think his sacrifice, like? sacrificed made that happen like he didn't from what we know he didn't do anything unless it was just time that just did it and things just settling after you know like a temporary crisis in korean peer in the period of korean is that lee chang don't saying that things will get better this is not going to be you know this uh, are the troubled times that we live in now are not going to last forever is that what you think happened i think that's it it's also a sense there's also the sense that the family were so shocked at like the death of MacDong that they rallied around each other. They they can't quite iron out their differences. Like the drug detective is now working with the family restaurant, but he's still drinking. Um, but MacDong's death ha- uh, has done something to sort of galvanize the feeling of family. And whereas so shifting back to number three, I, th- I think number three takes a more cynical view at sort of the capitalist structure that Korea pre and post crisis is sort of undertaken and it's you know he you know he's trying really hard to uh to kind of climb into this and i think it's safe to call it a corporate world because that's that's what it is i mean like you said it kind of turns into like a a middle management comedy sort of thing and in the end it's just he can't there's just too many everybody when everybody's looking when when we live in the world where individualism like that's the word that i think you used is just looking out for themselves it's impossible for the entire society to climb so he can you know it's either sink or swim to use a popular expression so he just looks out for himself he kind of defects into the uh the 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 prosecutor and he's you know he's he's going to jail but you know his wife and his kid is uh is secure and that's another another funny moment where he's like in jail and the camera is on him and he says, oh, this kid looks nothing like me. <laughs> and then he pans to the kid and it's like just a spitting image of him. <laughs> yeah, he's got the ponytail as well. Yeah, yeah, the, the, the mullet or something. Yeah. I don't know what that was. <laughs> and the sunglasses. But yeah, and it's in the end, and you can, like I said, I, I called that a noble a gesture, but I don't even think it was noble. I think it's just, he just kind of, you know, resigned himself into that sort of, you know, dog get dog structure because the prosecutor before he died, he says, you know what, I'm one. There is, uh, he says a number, there are so many prosecutors hired every month in South Korea. We will get you. And then that's the last thing I've seen. Of course, there's that misleading 
uh, you know, shots where we think he's killed him, but it turns out that he didn't. He made a deal with the prosecutor. He probably, you know, received a reduced sentence and by giving them information and whatnot. Uh, and you know, it just he won in the end at the at the cost of everyone else. And I think that just I think the more slightly more cynical but also more realistic approach the number three takes with kind of the same subject matter. Yeah, it's like like you said, it's like in, when he finally he spent most of the film trying to work within the family, and he's constantly banging his head against a brick wall. And then when he decides to act as an individual, then he manages to progress in life to somewhere more to his satisfaction and i think it's quite an interesting contrast like like han suk Q's character in number three survives by betraying the world of gangsters whereas his character in green fish ends up dying because he adheres to all the rules uh, which is something that happens in a, a bit of sweet life as well yeah and uh i think it's also let's just not short the main actor uh which his name is uh han suk Q. Sankyu. I mean, this he couldn't be more different between these two films, right? And yet he's so good in both of them. Absolutely. Like, I I love the fact that in number three, he's like, when you first see him, he's a, a street thug. And he dresses like it. And then when he progresses up the ladder of uh, leadership, he dons the suits. And uh, he has a more debonair air about him, but he still keeps going back to the streets and he still has this thuggish part to him. Whereas, uh, and you can believe that he would be a leader in that. Whereas in Green Fish, he's, he's, he plays a character as incredibly naive. Baby face. I think, yeah. I think that was the, you, you, that's the right, you coined the perfect world for that. He's a very baby face character. Yeah. He's like such a, an innocent and it, it stands, in a complete contrast to his performance in number three. And I think it's it's worth noting that uh, uh, Han Suk Kyu was a very popular, he was a very um, popular leading actor in the late 90s. He was in this, he was in Green Fish, he was in uh, in Christmas in August, he was in Siri or Shiri, however you pronounce that. Um, and then sort of, I mean, he's remained a leading actor in Korea and he, you know, he's, his movie, the, his, his, remember, for some reason, internationally, the movies that he stars in has, don't get as much attention as he did, like, for, like, a brief amount of time in the, in the late 90s and early 2000s. He's, again, he's been in starring roles and his movies do well in Korea, but I don't think he's, he's internationally as well known uh, as he is for this, especially Shiri, which was, you know, the big Korean hit of 99. Yeah, like, um, I, I had trouble uh, remembering where I'd seen him before before when uh, from when i watch these films whereas uh choi min sik and song kang ho have become like household names and even made a jump to um, western films in the case of choi min sik yeah exactly and i think both of them are also brilliant in uh, number three mm, oh yeah song kang ho like showing his comedic chops and um i think i i, I read in a review that um he was ad-libbing a lot of his speeches when he's giving lectures to his um, acolytes, his gangster acolytes. And this was something that came up with uh, Memories of Murder, which he discussed in the last season of Heroic Purgatory, where he's ad-libbing scenes in the club or in police briefings. So if you want to see some of Song Kang-ho's um, comedy ability, you should definitely check out number three. Yeah, oh, definitely, yeah. And uh, whereas in Greenfish, he has, a, um, he has his role is smaller, I think, in the Greenfish. He just plays like a very typical thug. I don't think he... 
he does. I think he does stand out in that film a little bit, even though he's very briefly in it. But in number three is uh, is great, and Song Kang and Choi Min Sik, of course, too. I think I think Song Kang Ho uh, technically he he got his start in a year before with the pig that fell into the well by uh, what's Hong the director's Sang-Soo. name? Sang Su. Yeah, but I I don't think he got as much attention as he did both in as he did in number three. Uh, where after that he would go in to star the, in the to to, be, to have a more prominent role in the Quiet Family and mm. show more of his comedic chops and and then uh, uh, other films that just continue. But also Choi Min Sik also kind of that's the film that kind of catapulted into, into catapulted him into stardom. Mm. Uh, yeah, Choi Min Sik was also in um, Shiri as well, wasn't he? Exactly, and Song Kang Ho was in Shiri, I believe. Mm. Yeah, but the the prosecutor is also such a great character, and he's just. You know, it's that's that's the that's the thing, and I I I full disclosure, I've written a review about this film in in V Cinema, and one of the things that I think this film does really well is that it's there's no minor character that is neglected in this film. Every minor character, no matter how little appears in Scream, is distinct, is well treated, is is treated with you know, is given you know just just something to make them memorable. And I think I mean, think of course is not. A minor character is a pretty significant character in the story, but right from the beginning, he just kind of he 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 makes noise. He just he makes his presence felt, and and you know the fact that he's a figure to be reckoned with. Yeah, I love the fact that he dresses and acts like a working class guy, like um, Taiju's character. Like when he's going to these um, uh, these. Uh, I don't know how can you describe him like outdoor restaurants, and um, he's knocking back drinks, soju probably, and he's dressed like he should be going to work at docks. Yeah, yeah. Well, he has this very kind of pride, this sort of almost existential pride that is he's a self-made man, and he's 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 led this honorable life, which is anything but what he perceives the gangsters to be. Even though I I think the film makes the point that that's you know it's just capitalism is is. Uh, uh, treats all his children the same, even though from an outdated moral, you know, system, you might perceive certain, uh, certain, um, uh, certain professions to be more honorable than others. You know, in in terms of making a living in the society, both uh, Choi Min Six characters and and Ha Suk Su, so Tai Ju, are both you know they work very hard for what they do, but they're disposable. And they're disposable, exactly. Uh, just like, and and I think even though it's it's he says it as a point of honor, Choi Min Sik admits it. That says, if you kill me, someone else will come with come after you. So that's how that's how the system works. Yeah, and and of course that that fight that they have, and I think it just the, the film, you know, the the and this is I think and this is not that subtle. I think it's fairly obvious, but the film does this brilliantly. Is that you know part obviously gangster films are all about masculinity, and even though Green Fish is. Is some slightly subverts gangster films. Sort of the 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 topic of manly honor is still present there. Whereas number three just completely dismisses and plays around with that. And the fact that when Choi Min Sik prepare for this fight, everything about the fight completely undermines their masculinity. First of all, the fact that it takes place on a children's playground. I think it's just brilliant. I think it's just a very brilliant choice by the director. And it's not its not a cool fight. It's not a heroic fight. It just starts with uh, Taiju sucker punching the, the <laughs> prosecutor before he is even ready. And then its a, they just keep running from each other. It's just a very dirty, very, very unorganized fight. Neither of them, well, both of them train very hard and the prosecutor exercise every day and 
Taiju has been in tons of fights, so both of them are prepared for this. Their fight just kind of looks ridiculous. Yeah, it's kind of like a realistic fight where it's a lot of wrestling. Pretty much, yeah. It's just, it's just, and they're both exhausted without without a clear winner at the end. <laughs> yeah, and they can uh, agree to disagree at the very end. There's no, yeah, I, I love that fight, and I appreciated you pointing that out in your review. All right. So another another thing that I think I mentioned that I do think that one of number three strength is is characters, and I think also. Uh, you know what's his uh, Greenfish uh, has fewer characters, but the ones that have are treated very well. But do you th- what do you think of either film's treatment of female characters? They're both they're both integral to the film, but they're in different ways, different in Number Three and different in Greenfish. How do what did you make of either film's treatment of female characters? Which is I, I have to say a weakness of Korean cinema, especially around this time. I felt like um, Mi Ai in Greenfish was like your archetypal femme fatale, um, and she lacked agency. So I, I would agree with that. Yeah, yeah, she's very much subject to the men, to the whims of the men around her. So, um, so she's kind of uh, I don't want to say two dimensional, but she lacks she lacks um, what the women in Number Three have, which is like um, ambition. Um, uh, ind- individual thoughts uh, that can alter the whole course of a story. Yeah, the women in number three, they, they, they've got so much depth to them. Like, you could Taiju's girlfriend, um, Hyunji, she could just be a gangster's mall, or she could just be like Mi'ai in um, uh, Greenfish, but she's got a desire to be a poet, and that allows us allows the film to go into the world of the bourgeois and we get invited into like poetry salons and we meet flamboyant characters and um that has uh an impact at the very end of the film and i just love this characterization which just so it made her idiosyncratic and interesting and um important to the film rather than just uh um an object for men to chase yeah, and and I would say the same about the boss's wife in number three. She's not she's not as interested as Taiju's wife Hyun Ji, but she's not shortchanged in terms of her place at the in, in the overall narrative. Uh, she is like you said, she has desire, she has agency, and she knows what she wants. And the film gives her the space to to kind of express what it is that she wants out of life and you know it fits perfectly within you know one of the most powerful bosses of the city's wife what 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 she has the power to do and how she uses the maximum of that power yeah i i love the fact that they were so ruthless like uh hyunji taiju's girlfriend she may have been joking but at one point she says if you end up disabled i'm going to leave you and the boss's wife like you see her at the end, she's looking for another guy in order to maintain some sort of power at the very end when everybody's locked up. I thought that was a really nice touch that these women are like independent. Yeah, and I love how how the sub how the you know, it looks like you know, I feel I feel like this is just like I said, it's it's it goes to the quality of writing from from I think the director of this film also wrote it in number three, but it you think that is just that the the infidelity of Taiju's wife and also the boss the boss's wife is a, a subplot in the film, but it is actually integral to how that scene ends because that is the the match that starts the big cascade. Because what happens 
ashtray goes to if i'm if i'm remembering the film correctly i saw it a couple of days ago so i should but in case i don't uh, please correct me but the ashtray goes suspect something he sees her the wife the boss wife come out of the room He's, he he smells something fishy he comes in and he finds that guy he's about to hit him with an ashtray but the the poet teacher who's a mostly running a scam for vulnerable women to sleep with i mean that's his game right i yeah. don't think i mean he is a poet he's published book but i don't think that's his main occupation um but and he he gets a lucky shot he hits him he runs away then the injured ashtray goes out throws the ashtray misses the poet hits someone else and that kind of cascades into the whole thing absolutely it's- so it's it's brilliant how he manages sort of to, like you can continue your thought but he's just brilliant how he managed to sketch kind of like integrate this subplot into the main plot as a key element not just because you could i think a lesser writer would just left that subplot as a subplot and not necessarily integrated with the main narrative yeah it's it's a totally unexpected ending and it's actually built up throughout the film because the poet who i think goes under the name flaubert you see him at the beginning he's a very uh rimbaud Rimbaud. another flaubert is another french poet and (laughs) rimbaud is another french poet and and kind of both around the same time, so it's easy to confuse, but Rimbaud, yeah. Okay, so uh, Rimbaud, the Korean guy, the poet who's running a scam, he, he, you see him at the very beginning. He's like this really pretentious character. He's like, uh, at the very start when he introduced all the characters, he's deciding very hard which cravat he should wear, and he's got all of these affectations, and when he falls into the water, he tries to walk it off like it was nothing. Yeah. And then um he's when he has the affair uh he gets roughed up by taiju's gangsters and um you might expect it to end there but he gets the the poet himself gets drawn deeper and deeper into the world of the gangsters and then he has this because he's already been brutalized once when ashtray approaches him at the very end at least this unexpected twist which yeah like you said sets everything off yeah uh and i think like two things for one thing i also like to give credit to the writer for writing the boss the boss's wife smart enough that she i think it's not expressly stated in the film but i i do think she's whereas taiju's wife is kind of tricked by him in the beginning thinking that he's legitimately taken with her as instead of just being someone who is trying to uh, who's just carrying on the pretense of giving poetry lessons to women just to sleep with them. I think the boss's wife immediately, as soon as she describes it to him, I think she immediately sees him for what he is. There's someone who just sleeps with women. Uh, I, I, It's not stated, but I do think that she's aware of that. Yeah, it, there's like a real reversal of power dynamics when exactly. she has that meeting with him on a rooftop and he's like, I'm in over my head. Whereas when he's with Taiju's wife, He's totally in charge, and like like physically and mentally. Yeah, and also I think the 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 film, both his acting and sort of how how the director and the cinematographer choose to show him as a completely phony and pathetic character. That as an audience member, I just couldn't help but feel sorry for him. And you just have that moment where Ashtray is about to hit him. And you like, especially even if it's not the first time I watch it, I just say, no, no, that can't happen. It's just that emotion that he's just so pathetic that he just inspires pity. And I think the the filmmakers are aware of that. And they just like that. That was a brilliant choice to just reverse that and and get get him give a lucky shot because you can you can't have a character like that die. Uh, Absolutely. Okay, but yeah, and I agree when in terms of uh, because I I talked about number three, but in terms of Greenfish, uh, me, I, I, I. 
I don't think she's the three-dimensional character. I think in vacuum, I think she's a very well-written character with motivations and with a, an interesting backstory. Like I said, the, the film doesn't, I think the film gives you enough to kind of speculate a lot about where she's coming from and what it is that brought her to her predicament. But I don't, while I think the writer, which I also think was Lee Chandong, you know, did a good job in writing her, I don't think they do her justice in the narrative. I think he, she, like you said, I don't think they give her enough agency. I think she's an interesting character, but is just used as a means to get from point A to point B. She's as a means in the train. She's just a means for the uh, MacDong to get to get introduced to the gangster life, and she's a means for MacDong to sort of like kind of become more, how to say, more embroiled. Yeah, into the family, into this sort of gangster quote unquote family. Uh, and, and I think she just, she's just there to serve the other characters without her doing anything herself. Her, her desires, I think are, are well expressed, but the film doesn't give her agency. I mean, that's just, there's no, there's no need to make it more complicated than it is. It's just, the film doesn't give her agency. And I think that is very typical of, that's why I always consider, even though Greenfish is a great film, I do think it's a very more typical film of the time that he was made of. Whereas I think number three was in every respect was very ahead of its time. Yeah, I'd agree. There's, there's an interesting aspect to Mia's character where she's speaking Russian. Really? I, I, where, where, what part? It's, it sounded like she's uttering Russian words. I wasn't quite sure. Because, uh, I might've missed that. Yeah. But like it hints at an interesting background, but we don't get to, know that much about her okay i mean maybe maybe i'll i'll just try to see if i can find that i don't i, I might have missed that part do you remember exact part, uh, approximately where it happens it's after like she's in a rage after uh by has sort of pimped her out to a prosecutor oh do you mean that that like uh chan that she hmm. she chants every once in a while yes yes Oh, okay. I I didn't. I actually because that yeah that you're right. Okay, so yeah, there's a there's a thing. Whenever she gets angry, or whenever she gets overwhelmed, uh, whenever it it sounds like to me it, at the time I interpreted it as over than the subtitles don't translate it, so I actually don't know what language it is. Hmm. But it sounded to me like you know something that you kind of use to calm yourself down if you're in a panic attack or something like that, or if yeah. you're like breathing exercises, like a, a, a chakra kind of kind of mental exercise where you tell yourself when you're overwhelmed, when you're angry, when you're uh, panicked, where you're anxious. Yeah. So when you repeat uh, kind of like the, the, the a phrase to kind of calm yourself, that's how I interpreted that. Although I don't know what language it was because the subtitles that on the copy that we have didn't translate it. Yeah. It's, I, I did wonder about that background, and if we could have got more about that background, perhaps it would have made it would have made her character I, I, uh, more fleshed out. Yeah, yeah, I, I ter- yeah, that's I mean that, that's true. Like I said, I just interpret that as as you know a coping mechanism that she's come up with to kind of deal with her harsh life. Hmm. Yeah. Another thing that I like about number three is you know kind of how self-referential it is sometimes. Like, again, the film, like, there is a scene, uh, let me get to my notes here, there's a scene in the end when the, the interrogation, when the boss is, is caught, and right before he's taken away, he looks, I don't know if you noticed this, he looks straight at the camera, and he says, uh, about uh, Taiju, he says, 
do you think he will see the 21st century? Yeah, it's like breaking the fourth wall at that point. Exactly. And and, and there's more examples, but I, I interpreted that as, as to say, as you know, like Taiju for the second time in the film and the second time in a long time, you know, he did that. He, the first act of nobility, he did it in, in film's time in 1992, sort of before the IMF, before, you know, presumably Korea became a dog-eat-dog capitalist, you know, like culture. And, and then in 97, he's kind of become that corporate thing guy that is trying to, uh, to just climb the corporate ladder of his crime organization. And then he just does one more noble, again, it could, like we said, might have also been selfish, but at least it's somewhat noble. And the the boss before his last words are he looks at the camera and he says do you think this kind of character will survive the 21st century and he says do you think this kind of nobility this kind of proper acting has place in where we're headed because you know number three at least and this is i think slightly hinted into like the future in a more broad sense is also kind of kind of a theme in the green fish but it's a lot more explicitly talked about in in number three, this, this, you know, it's the 21st century. It's coming. It's coming. What year it is? There's a, a dialogue that I have. Is it, is it January 1st, 2000, or is it January 1st, 2001? Yeah. Nostradamus. So a, this, exactly. There's this big, big concern about, you know, what is the next century for? It's like this symbolic uh, coming of age for South Korean society. And, and I think the boss is kind of summarizing the point of the film that is this, is this where we're headed? Do you think that that kind of nobility is what will be Korea's future? And I think he thinks that, no, it's not. And of course, the film gives us a, a ray of hope that he's happy at the end. Things kind of worked out for him. So maybe, yes, maybe the film is not a, as cynical as to completely deny hope to its characters and its audiences and by the ending, uh, kind of him being happy as he is, even though he's in jail. Yeah, like there's uh, the bit at the ending where Taiju is like uh, fantasizing about his life um, in America, I guess. And um, his wife Hyunji and his son are on a beach and they're waving to him and he's walking towards them. And um, it's like a, a grainy image. And in a typical gangster movie, like that happy image would immediately be shattered with the main character getting killed. But um, Taiju just walks into like a, a pillar and knocks himself out, which is like um, just the movie again, using comedy to subvert everything. Yeah. And just to get back to the self-referential thing, there's, uh, you know, other other things that the movie just kind of is, you know, there's a lot of ad dialogue moments where, you know, they kind of justify their action as to what would happen in films, in a film, in a gangster film. Like he has a one one example, he has a dialogue with his wife and he says, why do you think gangster films, there's no kids in gangster films? And they, they have that exchange, which I think is very, very interesting. Yeah, it makes it makes gangsters timid. And his wife's like undercuts that sort of typical macho bravado and says it's because they don't have any plans for the future yeah they, they're they're lost souls essentially yeah and that's like that's the thing that gets him to think outside of the role that he's currently acting in yeah and the other the other bit of sort of referential which i think it's definitely played for comedy but i also think it's it kind of it kind of uh, pokes fun at this sort of traditionalist, more tradition, because we, I, I do think number three makes fun of, you know, where or at least criticize where Korea might be heading. But I think it also criticizing a lot of traditional values in Korea. Like, I think Song Kang-ho's character is entirely about, you know, how ridiculous these, you know, like traditional structure, because a uh, this Song Gag Ho is this sort of like almost a patriarch figure, this sort of absolute who's kind of keeps a tight leash on his family and lives by these strict, almost uh, monk-like, Buddhist monk-like 
values. Mm. Uh, but another another part where the film just undermines these a lot is when uh, uh, for, and there's two times where this like thing appears. First is where two a businessman who's about to sell the hotel to a, a rival gangster, and they're trying to to argue with each other, and they use these Chinese proverbs, mm. and they appear in writing on top of them. And I think I guess that's a common thing that in Asian culture, where you would when you're trying to make an argument, you throw a relevant proverb mm. uh, at somebody. And they're, they're well-known, like, you know, kind of like um, what would be an English equivalent. Uh, barking. Uh, a dog's bark is worse than its bite. Yeah, barking dogs ever bite, or, yeah, or, uh, I don't know, <laughs> something like that. Don't don't confuse the tree for the forest. Or there's a bunch of expression, and yeah. there's a lot of Chinese <laughs> proverbs and, and things like that, and they throw them in conversation. But then later, when Song Gang Ho tries to do it, he kind of messes it up. And you see that comedic, like, thing where the the characters the chinese characters appear and then there's like a they're crossed out because he just gets it wrong and then he just kind of gets gets flustered and he's just like kind of like like never mind he says and he, when he's trying to strike the deal about killing the boss again yeah like don't contradict me even if i'm wrong yeah exactly exactly so his uh so i thought i thought again but that's just you know very you know those are moments that make you very aware that you're watching a film but the film just embraces embraces them a yeah. lot so there's a lot of postmodern influence about it yeah like the on-screen text where you get the proverbs they just like animate themselves and like bounce off the screen and i think when the, in the one case where the uh where the the other in the first i think this was in the first example where the other gang arrives in the room and then there's that flashing um uh, like alarm sound and there's just like the text just like jumps all over the screen mm. well, i do think that the, go ahead no sorry go ahead no, I was just going to say, I do think, because I think Pulp Fiction was a big hit at the time. So I do think number three is definitely due trying to sort of kind of imitate um, kind of like the, not only the referential and maybe the self-referential style that I think Pulp Fiction made popular in, in, in the early 90s. So I do think there is a little bit of, in, uh, of that influence. Although I, the one key difference is that I don't think, uh, I think Tarantino is always uh, enamored with his references and it, it'll he includes them out of uh, uh, love and out of reverence. Whereas I think uh, in this film, they're definitely, I mean, sometimes they're included for out of reverence, but they're also definitely made fun of. Yeah. There are uh, references there. Um, uh, I read, uh, what was it? Choi Min-sik has uh, an hourglass, which he turns over. And I think that was a reference to a popular Korean drama in the 1990s. Okay, I, that I would definitely not have seen because I don't, I don't recognize that reference. Yeah, Sandglass. Like, th this is something I've read in uh, a review from uh, so somewhere else, so I don't know how accurate that is. Yeah, there's, I noticed some references, uh, like, I, I felt parts of number three reminded me of uh, the early Scorsese film Mean Streets. Nothing specific, but I just, the vibe in general, kind of the 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 whole fast pacedness of it and in parts kind of like how the extras the gangsters act and all that it reminded me a little bit of that film hmm. um uh it reminded me a lot of uh there were i think some explicit references to fukasaku's uh, battles without honors and humanity like there is in the first fukasaku film there's a but right before the character goes to jail there's a scene where he makes love to his girlfriend or or maybe even a prostitute and i think the way that's shot, it's identical to how the first time we see Taiju make love to his then girlfriend. Mm, counting uh, to a hundred. No, not not 
not that scene. I think it's a different scene. Okay. Yeah, I don't think it's that scene. Is it? Or maybe it is. Yeah. Not that. No. No. Not the counting part. Not the counting part. There, because there, there's a few times that he makes love to her, so I don't remember which which one. I think it's the first time. But it's just the way it's shot. It's like, uh, like a dark floor with nothing else shown, yeah. and the camera just pans over their bodies, and only their bodies show against a dark a dark background. And almost there's almost that identical in Kinji Fukasaku's Battles of Honor and Humanity. Okay. So I noticed I noticed that. Uh, so definitely, and there's probably a lot of other references to maybe more more uh, Korean gangsters that I, we probably have not seen and maybe don't remember. Yeah. Okay. So is there anything less that you think we can uh, discuss about these two dramas, these two films that we have not talked about? Like the main, the gangster by um, this talk of him uh, being mixed race. Wait, who 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 are you referring to? By Taigon, the main gangster in Greenfish. Like, oh, is that when he tells the story of his his growth? Yeah, like the, the rival gangsters. I think they call him like a mongrel and um, trying to act like a dog. And um, there's mention of uh, Vietnamese about him. Interesting. I did not pick on that but you might be that would certainly contextualize certain things that happen in the film and maybe the uh, her chanting in a foreign language that you mentioned earlier his uh girlfriend like a uh, me i hmm. i that's what i got that's what i got a sense of though that he's mixed race and like these korean gangsters are denigrating him for it yeah i mean it definitely got it definitely got the sense that he grew up in a very poor household but i did not get the mixed race part of it uh, like he, he, his parents. When he tells that story, his parents abandon him, mm. and um, I don't know. I mean, that's possible. I will have to look into that. Uh, that's. I mean, it's, it, that would definitely. I mean, that would definitely put it into perspective and make make us understand where he's where that character is coming from because he's definitely an interesting character. Mm. But I don't know. I, I I didn't get that. I mean, now that now that you mention it, it is something that I think it's a it's a it's a theory that is worth investigating. Yeah, I could have misinterpreted it, but. That's like the main thrust that I got with his interactions with the uh, Korean gangsters. The other gangster, yeah, I interpreted that as more, you know, just a, a way to describe him as inferior. Like when they kept making those dog metaphors that he's a puppy. Yeah. That he says, "I had a puppy that used to kick all the time, but now he's a grown dog, and he thinks he can bite me. He can uh, bark at me, but he still doesn't dare bite me." Like I just. I just interpreted that as him seeing uh, Bai Taigon as inferior to him, not necessarily, not necessarily making uh, denigrating him for not being fully Korean. It is possible because he would have maybe be old enough to be kind of a child of Vietnam War uh, refugees. Yeah, well, the Korean soldiers did go over to Vietnam. Yeah, exactly. So he, he age-wise, he might fit into that category, although. I don't necessarily think I got out of the film, but it's certainly is something that it it is a a possible and valid interpretation. Yeah, I could. And I I would have to look up. Sorry to interrupt you again, but I would have to look up what language is she saying those chants in because that would that would explain a lot. That yeah. would might shed some light into that. I I could be way off of this, but uh, yeah, that's what I interpreted as. Again, these all all three of these main characters are outsiders. Yeah, ex exactly, exactly, yeah. Okay, so anything else about these two films? Uh, just brilliant use of locations and sets. 
just to so show how they progress in society. Like, uh, you see, um, Macdong's family live on in a satellite city of Ilsan, just outside Seoul, and um, it's just like this forbidding place which promises urbanization, which is going to wipe out everything, and then. Taiju, um, he becomes a child of like the consumerism that was rampant in uh, throughout Korea in that uh, era, and when you see him move up in um, the uh, hierarchy of the uh, criminal family, and um, he gets this lavish apartment. Yeah, and it's um, uh, before Taiju, he's you know the first the first thing that he's rewarded is we're, we're getting a condo in the city or something like that. And his girlfriend is super happy. And he says, and you know, he says, I will, I, I'll earn enough income. And she's, you know, she doesn't, I also like how, you know, in, in, um, again, speaking about how great female characters are in number three, you know, she's not, she doesn't have like the typical gangster wife or mother or whatever that she's concerned about. Uh, even though that comes later in the beginning, she's happy, you know, my, my boyfriend or my husband or my fiance, whatever, he's making money and he's a gangster. And that's, you know, it is what it is. She's, she's completely aware of what her boyfriend does for a living. And she's super happy when, you know, he makes enough money to, to not have her work at a nightclub anymore. Yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. So one, th- uh, one thing that kind of fascinated me when I, when I mean, you know, when I first were encountered these two films is that, and I think predictably, Greenfish won all the awards that year, so I think the Blue Dragon Awards or the Grand Bell, I don't remember which one. The big awards that are in South Korea, Greenfish won Best Film, Best Director, Best Actor, and I think Best Screenplay and a bunch of other awards. Number three did not, even though I do think it was a, it did very well in the box office that year. The only award that he was recognized for in the sort of in the in the national awards of South Korea was the Best Supporting Actor for Song Kang Ho. Mm. Which I think is very well deserved. Although I do wish that it was, because I do think it's a it's a great great film. I would st- when it comes to number three, and we we will kind of give our uh, closing thoughts, obviously. But when it comes to number three, I would stop short of calling it a masterpiece. I I am I really enjoy that film, and I I am a little bit. I do think that it came out too early. I think it had to come out just a, two or three years later. It was just the market. And just the culture for that kind of experimentation in South Korean cinema had not yet been born. And I think had it come out a little later, would have been, I think, a lot well-received. And it would be a lot more beloved now, whereas it's kind of, it's, you know, cinephiles and connoisseurs of South Korean cinema will have heard of it and may have even seen it. But it does not have the place that some of the, uh, some of the you know, top Korean films that are played all the time in streaming services and are released on DVD and they, they are held to the high regard. Whereas number three doesn't have that place. Uh, isn't that the way of comedy so that they're not appreciated as much in their time? I was really impressed. Like this is like lapped up to become one of my favorite Korean films of all time. Uh, it's just so brilliantly constructed. Um, and um, it's even though it's made in 1997, it has like this visual style to it that seems to presage a lot of Korean movies further on and you don't see that visual inventiveness it has that very modern almost postmodernist kind of things that kind of keeps it timeless almost and it has even though it is fairly it it kind of it's not shy about when it's taking place it's talking about Korea in the 90s like it's 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 very meant to be a topical critique yet it somehow 
is able to transcend that. Uh, I was I wish you know somehow some people kind of are able to kind of like revive old films like they watch them they think it's great and they're I wish I had that kind of influence in the in uh, in the world of of cinephiles if I could say hey watch this film because it's great and it just everybody listened to me but alas I don't a criterion uh, if you're listening to this <laughs> yeah rescue number yeah, three criterion should release should release a copy because it's definitely it's de- it, it, it is definitely criterion material absolutely. Uh, can I just say, like, um, one scene that stands out in number three is the music video scene. <laughs> it's just pure 90s, the music. <laughs> and which which scene are you referring to? The training of um, Song Kang Ho's character, where they're like um, ascetic monks training. Yeah, exactly. In yeah, the forest. ascetic monks type. Yeah. Oh, yeah, what is like black and white and silent. Yeah, it's so stylish and funny. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's it. we were talking last week about you know how how inventive Wong Kar Wai is with his you know cinematography, and I don't think number three goes quite as far, but it's certainly very inventive with its uh, you know camera work and and uh, at times even cinematography. Yeah, I love some of the uh, match cuts you get when the camera's spinning and it goes from like the ashtray to another circular object, or, or the overhead shots so so often where yeah. it's just kind of. It almost gives you this strategic look at how things happening, even though even though when it's not action scenes, it just gives you this strategic shot to to kind of. And almost at times, it gives you when, especially Song Kang Ho with his uh his disciples, mm. where they're in that motel room, and it the, sometimes the camera will sh- will make it seem big and pretty plenty of room, and sometimes will just become claustrophobic and like just like you know emphasize the smallness of the room. Oh yeah, there's another scene where Taiju's talking to one of the guys who's betrayed the boss, and there's like an overhead shot looking directly down, and then there's a a, a shot under. Looking, yeah, uh, I love that shot. That I, I love that shot. Yeah, it's just such a, a brilliant switching of camera angles, and like like that visual inventiveness you just don't see in many movies. Yeah, and there, again, it's it's like the the small, and I think this episode has been more about number three and Greenfish, and I kind of predicted that because I do think, like I said, Greenfish is the more conventional, whereas number three is, you know, generates uh, has a lot more noteworthy things to talk about. Uh, even though I do still both are great films, and 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 they they kind of go together well, but uh, number three has this small details that just kind of like that, like just show how you know, like when uh, Taiju escapes. And then he just falls into a cart of apples and then just kind of goes down and grabs an apple and, and uh, as he's limping away. Yeah, he, like he, he's just being tortured. He probably hasn't eaten in such a long time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like details like that that are just, or, you know, like even like what I mentioned earlier, the pedaling stuff. Like, you know, you, you, you'd have to go to the extra mile to say, you know, the, the scene is about uh, Taiju's wife. Uh, what's her name? I should, should say her name uh... to be fair to her. Uh, Let's see, it's... Uh, oh, Hyunji. Hyunji. Hyunji, yeah. Hyunji. And that scene is about Hyunji starting an affair with a poet, with uh, Rimbaud or whatever his name is. But, you know, they just go into insert, you know, the extra things, like, you know, him just completely in lust, like you said, and her just pedaling and struggling to pedal for two. And that <laughs> you know, very romantic scene that is so undermined by that. Yeah. Oh, when Taiju's wheeling the bus in the hospital gurney. Like hit Taiju and his boys, and um, he just does a wall run. <laughs> it's completely yeah. unnecessary, yeah, yeah. but it adds so much style. Exactly, exactly, exactly. So I do think I do. I, I you know, if whoever's listening, give give a give a try to number three. Of course, watch Greenfish as well because it it definitely 
I I like recommending Green Fish along with number three, mostly because of the irony of how the director of number three kind of faded into obscurity, whereas the director of Green Fish very deservedly became one of the most famous uh, directors of uh, South Korea. But still, you know, Green Fish, I like to recommend it as a baseline for what a typical, although very good gangster film would look at the time. And then number three, to just subvert all that and it just... And also be a very, very good, uh, very forward-thinking film. Yeah, I think your decision to, to pair the two together is just brilliant. Okay, so uh, let me. Uh, is there anything uh, else that you would like to go over uh, before we close the episode? No, I think this is great. Okay, so we hope you enjoyed our discussion of Greenfish and Number Three, and we hope that if you have not seen um these either of these two films we strongly encourage that you do because they're great films either way and we also encourage you that if we have made any mistake or any factually we've uh, made any historically or factually incorrect statements please feel free to leave a comment and correct us we're happy to to issue apologies if necessary uh uh for next time uh for the next episode of heroic purgatory again we're continuing in with our 90s theme and especially we're sticking with 1997 and we'll be talking about Takeshi Kitano's 1997 masterpiece. Well, we'll see about that, but it's, <laughs> it's 1997 film. Uh, I don't like to prematurely give any reactions, but 1997 film Hanabi or Fireworks, uh, the Venice uh, Golden Lion winner of that year. All right, so anything you'd like to finish with or plug before we close the episode, Jason? Uh, I'd just like to encourage everybody to keep watching Asian films. And uh, like you, yep, check, uh, you should definitely check out uh, as you said, um, people should definitely check out Greenfish and Number Three. Um, and uh, yeah, please visit uh, V Cinema and um, and uh, you know get in touch with us uh, if you have any comments. And uh, thank you for listening. Yeah, and I, I I always forget to say this, but if you enjoy our show at all, you feel free to leave a review at Apple Podcasts because that helps other people discover it as well. If, you, if it's convenient for you. I know you have to download it, so I'm sorry for that. But if you can, leave us a, a good review and if you enjoy the show. So thank you very much. Uh, have a, Enjoy uh, the rest of the weeks. And until next time, enjoy watching these films. Tell